The Winning Formula Podcast. How to succeed in the business of sport. Brought to you by Right Formula. Welcome to The Winning Formula, brought to you by sports and entertainment consultancy Right Formula. I'm Ben Nichols, Head of Communications at Right Formula, and it's great to be with you for episode one of our brand new podcast, one that aims to tackle the pressing issues dominating the international sport industry. In our podcast, we'll be speaking to leading figures from the world of sports sponsorship, marketing, brands, events, athletes, media and PR, as we aim to get under the skin of what it takes to truly succeed in today's competitive sporting landscape. And I'm delighted to say that for our debut show, I'm joined by a very special guest, one that you'll all be familiar with. A former World and Commonwealth champion, a three-time London Marathon and New York Marathon winner, a record breaker and a former BBC Sports Personality of the Year winner, I make no exaggeration when I say this person is one of Great Britain's sporting greats. So it's my pleasure to welcome Paula Radcliffe to our very first show. We'll be speaking to Paula on a range of topics over the next 45 minutes or so, but first, let's tackle what will be our routine opening to the winning formula, a slot where we speak to influential figures here at the company to preview some of the key talking points from our chat with the main guest. That's coming next. The Winning Formula Podcast. Well, I look forward to speaking to Paula later on, but I'm delighted to welcome Right Formula's CEO and founder, Robin Fennick, to our debut podcast to preview some of our talking points from today's episode. Robin, first of all, how are you? Very well, thanks, Ben. Yeah, looking forward to talking to you. Interesting times we live in with COVID-19 and tough for all industries and certainly tough for sport with a lack of physical events taking place. Um, tell us as, as CEO of Right Formula what impact this has had for the company. And, and as a second point to that, you know, we work with a lot of athletes at Right Formula. So what's the impact on COVID-19 for them, do you think? You know, if I maybe could start with just talking about, talking about where the sports world is at the moment. And uh, I think at times it's felt a little bit like we've had our hands tied behind our backs um, and there's almost been no exception in the sports world. Um, we are no doubt, as, as our business, we are actually pretty lucky in that we have quite a diverse uh, range of experience and skill sets um, and we've had to turn our hands to things um, such as uh, digital and, and esports as opposed to um, like hospitality and events and experiential work Um in our business but um, uh, I think it's fair to say that we've all adapted pretty well to working from home and that's been a bit of a surprise for me. Um, We do seem to be having countless Zoom calls or Microsoft Teams calls but um, it is interesting because I think people are already starting to think a little bit differently Um, and I think that's that's the key really and when we go back many say that uh, we're going to be in a new normal, but I don't know about that. I, I think uh, things may not be drastically different. Um, I think we will fall into some of our old habits potentially, um, but there will certainly be some acceptance from and working from home, um, and we'll fa- have to find a new balance between uh, work and, and home life. Um, that said, I do think a few things are kind of rising to the fore at the moment, and this applies for for both brands, rights holders, and, and athletes. Um, and I think authenticity is going to be critical. Um, we're living in a cynical world before. Um, we now uh, need to think with much more uh, empathy and we need to be flexible around our, our approach. Um, it must be very frustrating for 
uh, a number of those who maybe have quite a lot of time on their hands and want to get back to doing their, their day job um, or back to their training if you're an athlete. But um, uh, there's maybe some good and some silver lining that can come out of this um, in that this will give us a bit of time to think. Um, you know, we're putting plans in place for when we can come back. And it's rare that we actually really do have this time to think. So we should make the most of it. Absolutely. And I think later on, certainly I'll be asking Paula uh, about her work with Nike. It's a, It's been a career long partner of hers. And obviously they are a brand we all know. They're a brand that have really um, centered on purpose driven sponsorships. We, you know, the, the Colin Kaepernick is, uh, campaign is one example. They've also done a great deal of work in, in championing women's sport as well. Uh, why do you think it's so important that well, why do you think it's we're seeing an emergence of brands uh, really focus on purpose-driven marketing within sport? Um, and why is it only happening now, do you think? I don't think it is necessarily just happening now. I think there's been a gradual trend, actually. Um, I hear the, the phrase, uh, less promotion, more emotion quite regularly, um, but even more so now. I think this has just allowed us time to be more empathetic, um, Purpose was important before, be even more important now. Um, uh, and we need to live by our morals. Um, you know, we need to treat others as we wish to be treated. Um, and uh, we need to take responsibility and, and have courage in our actions. Um, relationships are going to be critical. Um, we've not, uh, we're not going to come out of this necessarily in the good times that we entered beforehand. And uh, we're going to have to lean on on some of those relationships that we've got. So the flexibility that we show, um, uh, the purpose-driven approach is, uh, is, is key, I believe. Um, and it's really fascinating for me um, because you look at some of the brands that are doing some great stuff around the world at the moment, but um, uh, people like Sky and, and the Ocean Race or uh, we've been involved in an activity with Kia around the Trophy Tour and... Um, sending football boots and sports shoes um, to Syrian refugees. Uh, Barclays um, and Boots have, of course, got involved in, in women's football, but also from a, a series perspective and governing bodies. <clears throat> We've seen Premier League get into primary styles, that's education in, in schools. Um, NBA have created a mental health programme, Podium Analytics, uh, a new entity uh, by Ron Dennis has been involved with uh, safety in sport. So uh actually we're, we're doing more and more and uh, i think consumers are, are resonating with this and they feel more passionate about brands as a result and that's going to be critical in the future as we start to engage um and engage is a key word because it's something that brands have been talking about for some time but they've not done it necessarily in an empathetic way um so i think the best way to engage moving forward will be through purpose-driven activity and i guess just we touched on already the the, the times we live in and the situation athletes are facing, um, their sort of new normal as well. What advice would you give based on your years of experience in the industry for athletes who have a bit more time to think now in terms of what they should be doing post-retirement and, and where they should be focusing their energies? It's really interesting because I think there are a number of athletes that are, uh, are coming on to, uh, into the business world. Um, and I think... Uh, Paula's, we're very fortunate to have uh, Paula on this podcast. And, you know, it's hard to believe maybe that someone that has been in four consecutive Olympic Games, won three New York marathons, three London marathons, 
um, you would have thought she's a superstardom and doesn't really need to think about what she would need to do next. But I think it's the case for all athletes, actually. You know, however <coughs> famous you are or however successful you are, you need to think about um, what you want to do next. Um, some of them are fortunate enough to have the finance to uh, not rush into something and others are quite the reverse. They need to pay their mortgages. Um, and it's amazing the amount of individuals in professional sport that come into this world that do actually need to get a job again. Um, and largely that's down to the salaries or the sports they're involved in um, and, uh, and what they were paid at the time. But athletes don't need to reinvent themselves. Um, they've, we should remember that they've learned some critical skills uh, when uh, when they've been involved in sport, so skills like teamwork or leadership, um, you know, they've all strived to be number one in their their industries. They've had to work under short deadlines, um, and that can be applied into the business world. But I think they should think like a brand um, uh, and think about what their core values are. I would say that's you know a starting point for most brands. So as an example, you know if you feel as though you you embody determination or success or wanting to be humble, then you should associate with people and partners that emulate these features. I think it's important for athletes to be uh, authentic. Um, I think it's important to stay front of mind. It's really interesting. I feel that uh, a number of athletes would argue that the media are their enemy when they are participating um, and active in their roles but then they become their best friends when they leave sport because they need to stay current um, so I think it's really important actually that athletes don't turn their back on media during their careers and actually uh, they work with media when they finish because they can elongate you know their careers and um, uh, and to some degree that they're kind of their fee structures as, as they you know, look to drive revenue through through sport in the future. And I should probably say that actually there's a couple of really interesting case studies there. You know, if you look at people like uh, Gary Lineker uh, or a David Coulthard, uh, Martin Johnson, you know, these individuals, they finish their careers, but they're staying current uh, by being front of mind on uh, TV and, and uh, in many cases, terrestrial TV. Um, but um, I also think it's important for athletes to the some uh, purpose-driven activity. We've talked about it as a brand. So we talked about athletes looking like they should be brands. So that's, the same should be true for those athletes in the future. And looking at CSR initiatives that they get involved with, um, we've seen people like Rafa Nadal clearing floods in Mallorca uh, or Neymar making donations to UNICEF. Um, we've seen a lot of athletes do things around uh, the NHS recently, whether it be delivering food or uh, just making donations that I think is really helps position them um, uh, front of mind. It doesn't have to be financially orientated either. It can be just a good cause. It could be a fun run to raise money for something, but um, that will generate positive PR for them. And uh, I feel that will, will uh, help them create a longer lasting legacy. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much, Robin. It's been great to chat and uh, look forward to talking again soon. Thanks, Ben. Been a pleasure having, uh, having a chance to talk to you. The Winning Formula Podcast. Okay, well now to the main section of the podcast. I'm thrilled to welcome Paula Radcliffe to the show. Paula, welcome. Firstly, how are you doing on lockdown in these unusual circumstances down in the south of France? We're not doing too badly here. Um, thankfully, I think that our region actually wasn't hit as badly uh, as other regions were, certainly in France and elsewhere in the world. Um, 
and we are together as a family, which I, I think makes it easier to handle. Um, it has been difficult because we had to deal with um, my dad actually um, passed away on April the 8th um, through, through heart failure, um, but was caught up in all of the, the coronavirus panic um while he was going in hospital uh and then it's made it very difficult not being able to get back for the funeral not being able to to support my mom um but i guess there are lots of other people sadly in that same boat at the moment all over the world so yeah my heart goes out to them i understand how difficult it is and i think we all just have to work together to put this crisis behind us as quickly as possible yeah absolutely and firstly you know our, our condolences to hearing that news we really are very sad and our thoughts are with you and the family. Looking to your career in running, you know, we, we all know you for your successes, um, successes in professional sport. Talk a little bit, there are highlights, there are low points, um, you know, which have been publicly documented. Tell, tell us a little bit about, if you can look back on that career, what were the highlights? What are the takeouts that you think you'll carry w- with you for the rest of your days? And what are, the, what are the lower points where you think, you know, some of the regrets and things you think you wish you'd done differently? Um, well, I think I try not to think too much about regrets and what you could have done differently. I try to learn from mistakes that you made and not repeat those in the future. But given that we can't go back and, and redo things, I try not to have too many regrets and try and make the most of each opportunity and each moment when you have it. So I think I'm very fortunate. There are lots of highlights. I mean, my career goes back to 11 years old when I first started competing. And for me, that first national cross-country title, that first team title when I was only 13, that was a huge highlight because that gave me the the enjoyment and the fire to, to keep going further. My first World Cross Country title in Boston in 1992 was a huge impetus at that point for me to think, OK, maybe I can make a professional career out of this sport that is essentially my hobby. Um, if I keep working on this path, can I see how good I, I genuinely can be? Uh, and then in that vein, I made a goal that day to try and win the senior title. So f- for me, winning the senior World Cross Country in 2001 was a huge, huge highlight because it took me nine years from 1992, a lot of seconds, thirds, fourths and fifths and lower, working towards trying to achieve that. So being able to to finally get that was a huge thing for me and I think gave me the courage then to and the confidence to move on to the marathon. And then obviously a lot of highlights in the marathon um, as well. That first one uh, in London was kind of a dream come true. It was something that I'd, I'd watched my dad running in 1985 and been inspired to be a runner almost from that day. Um, so to be finally taking part in an iconic British event like that and for it to go so well, that was a huge, huge highlight. And then to come back the next year and bring the world record back, having said it in Chicago, all of those were highlights. But for me, my final one in 2015 as well was a big, big thing um, because it was the culmination of my battle to prove to myself that I could get back and I could finish my career on my own terms. Um, And I don't think I really thought about how that would be viewed by everyone else. And I think the almost tribute that the London Marathon gave me when I finished, the emotions of that day uh, will always make it, even though it was my slowest ever marathon, um, will make it one of the huge highlights. Well, I think, you know, the marathon, you, you, you touched on it there, you know, that's the London Marathon is an event that many people will forever 
associate with your name. Um, you know, interesting, you mentioned your dad back in 85 competing in it. And then obviously your last one in 2015, I think it was. So it, it, it's an iconic event, as we know. It's, um, it's very close to, to people's hearts in the UK. It kind of signals that time of year in the spring when, when that, there's a, that kind of swing of sports events leading into the summer. Um, can you talk a little bit about more about what the London Marathon means to you, how it's evolved over the years? And, you know, obviously it being postponed this year with, with so much sport given coronavirus. But what does it mean to you as a sporting event in 2020? If you compare it to all the other events in, in athletics, track and field and, and other sport, how do you think it ranks? Well, I mean, I think the, the London Marathon is right up there because it actually transcends a sporting event. Um, uh, we should have had the Olympic Games. We should have had um, many other European Championships and other events this year. Um, but the London Marathon, I think, in the way that it brings together the UK, but definitely London, um, and it becomes a festival that day, and the impact that it has across so many charitable platforms, across so much mental health, um, and just the reach that it, it, as far as it touches, and the number of people and their lives that it touches, um, I think it's really hard to to put that down into words how just how important it is and how it's grown into that and I can't remember the first one in 1981 but I have seen videos of it I can certainly remember that day in 1985 and then I saw it grow and it was still a hugely iconic event to me each year because I was competing in distance events even before I competed in the marathon and then I can remember my first one in 2002 um, my dad warning me about quiet areas around the Isle of Dogs which there had been in the 80s um, but which totally did not exist in, um, by the year 2000 um, and there was just not one quiet moment the whole way along the route and then in 2003 it seemed to get louder still and in 2005 we had the double back section added um, which just increased the the crescendo of noise uh, and I think it's grown because people love it. People love to get involved in it. It gives people a target. Nobody gets to the finish line of any marathon without having learned something and without having become a stronger person and without experiencing that magic camaraderie that is marathon running. Um, but I think that is fortified in London uh, and it's made a difference to so many people who may not even have taken part, may not even have been and watched, but just by the amount raised through charities and just that making a difference to them or just by them being inspired by somebody in that race. Um, that's that's why it's so important and I think that's why it will continue to be important. It will certainly have impacted people being cancelled this year. I think it absolutely had to be. Um, but I know there are a lot of people now getting ready for that day in October and certainly getting ready for that event coming back next year to, to kind of, it kind of proves all that's good about London and all that's good about um, the camaraderie of running and people coming together. The, I mean, we talk about the, the sort of charitable giving that's, you know, with the London Marathon, that's something the public are very involved in for their, for their friends competing in the marathon. It's also a growing topic in sport and sports business. And obviously this podcast is very much focused on the kind of business and commercial side of sport. And something I think, we're seeing more and more is businesses and brands involved in sport having to focus more on the purpose, the purpose and cause side of why they might invest in sport, why they're involved in it. 
um, and not just seeing it as a commercial sort of proposition and, and something to invest in, but something where they can give back and make a difference. Would you say that, you know, in your experience working mm-hmm. with brands and organisations, um, be they governing bodies, be they be they brands or others sponsoring sports events, would you see we're seeing more and more of that that side of things? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think... Um... Maybe the brands kind of were were more involved when I first came in to uh, elite sport, I guess I'm talking kind of early 90s. Uh, and then that started to tail off a little bit. And then now we're seeing that hugely uh, come back. Uh, and I think federations, certainly, there was a huge period where they maybe weren't even really thinking that much about the athletes who should be the most important people they're thinking about um, but certainly in terms of, of, of giving back and the community outside of that they weren't really taking that into consideration but now I think they are and part of that has been driven by people within the federation and part of it has been driven by the athletes demanding that from the federations. Yeah absolutely I think one of the um, one of the areas where we're seeing athletes speak up more and more is is in that Olympic and Paralympic sports world. Um, we've seen it in anti-doping, but I think one area recently, another event, you know, the biggest of them all, uh, the Olympics was obviously postponed until, as it stands, 2021 in Tokyo. You know, some would say that came off the back of some pretty solid athlete pressure saying a decision needed to be made to help athletes train and, and figure out their schedules in good time before the Games. Um, and the IOC, to, to their credit, did make that decision, albeit probably under a bit more influence from athletes. What was your view on how that was managed? And I suppose, you know, getting your take on on how the Olympics and, and the bodies like the IOC do react to what seems like increasing athlete voice. Uh, well, first of all, I think it's good that they are starting to react to the athlete voice. I think the IOC probably in particular was one of the worst at actually listening to the athletes and considering the athlete as the most important stakeholder. Um, so it, it's good that they are finally doing that. I think with this whole coronavirus situation, I think it was very, very difficult for any governing bodies, even governments, to to react in the right way and there are very few that can probably look back with hindsight and say that they did it the best way possible um i think we're very much still learning and still kind of rooting around for the best way to deal with this because it it was unprecedented um and that made it very very difficult and i think even saying that the athletes called for that i think there was a huge amount of also national federations calling from it from a humanity perspective of there's too much else going in the, on in the world right now and sport actually is not the priority it might feel like it is for the athletes um but i think at the end of the day that decision had to be made because yes for the athletes i absolutely get it it's the most important thing that should have happened in 2020 But it isn't the most important thing that did happen in 2020 in the end. And I think we had to put the health of so many people all across the globe in front of of anything sporting or any individual goals uh, and aims for that year. And so I think finally the right decision was made. It probably should have been made quicker, but I'm not sure that we can criticise the IOC for that because I think... As I said, across the board, people should have reacted quicker. Well, I mean, aside from coronavirus, you know, which is the issue of our times, I think in sport and Olympic sport, the issues that have been sort of percolating. We met obviously several years ago, given my background in anti-doping, working for working for WADA. And you'll be very aware of kind of all the, the decisions that have been made um, for or not in favour of 
athletes with regards to, you know, the, the Russian doping scandal, which seems to have dragged on and on and on. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested now that kind of dust has settled a bit and it's in the rear view mirror, your thoughts on how athletes were listened to by the IOCs and the WADAs in response to that? Yes, I mean, I think they they are being listened to a lot more now. Um, I don't think that happened fast enough. And I think I think of people like, like Becky Scott and, and what she went through. She shouldn't have had to fight as hard as she did to get that athlete's voice heard. The athlete's voice should have been listened to from the beginning. Um, and, and I don't think it was. Uh, I think for a long time the IOC resisted that. I think certain elements of, of WADA also resisted it. Uh, and I think a, a lot of different federations also. And I think it's, it's underlying, it's understanding that bottom line, which is that the most important people that you should be protecting in the sport are the clean athletes. So you should really be listening to them first and foremost. And I think finally the right decision was made about Russia. Um, But I also think that that should have been learned from. uh, And I'm not sure that Russia, or certain Russia, isn't the only country where that was going on. Um, And that possibly needed, that deterrent needed to be extended to, to other countries which weren't abiding because the one thing we should be aiming for is that fair and equal playing field and athletes should be under the same conditions as regards anti-doping, as regards clean sport, wherever they are in the world. Uh, and that's just not the case right now. It's not even the, the case with the US or an athlete in the UK. And it's certainly not the case in other areas of the world. There are areas that athletes know they can go to to get away with things that they shouldn't be doing. And that should not be able to happen in this day and age. And, and just, you know, to, to tail off on anti-doping, you've obviously had your own um, experience in having to, I guess, defend yourself publicly when a blood database years ago was released and having to explain what's a really complicated topic to ensure that, that the public understood understood the issue um, and understood that you were clean. Can you explain what that experience was like? Very, very tough. Um, I think the hardest thing that I've ever had to go through um, because when something that you feel so strongly about uh, and that's so abhorrent to you, when you're ab- actually accused of doing that and when... I think for me, the hardest thing was when I came face to face with the fact and had to realise that actually the journalists weren't interested in the truth. They had their story and they were going to block me trying to be able to to tell the truth. That's what I found so very hard to to get my head around. The fact that I was calling people at WADA who were telling me, well, okay, there's no issue. I don't know what you're worried about. You just need to explain that to to the journalists. That wasn't happening because they weren't listening to me. I was being blocked from being able to even talk with people that they classified as experts um and i think when when that happens something that shakes you to the core like that it's very hard to to come to terms with and i think actually we talked about my dad right at the beginning but he really helped me to get through that by actually just in his way just saying you know it's, it's insignificant it doesn't matter because it's not the truth and the people that matter know the truth. And I think you have to suddenly become very strong about accepting that, yes, there will be some people that always believe something that's not true about you, and there's nothing you can do about it. Just tailing off on the athlete voice, one of the the main areas we've seen athlete consternation, I guess, across the world is on what's known as Rule 40, Olympics Rule 40. It's a very draconian and, in my view, anachronistic rule, a very outdated rule that prohibits athletes from really expressing themselves and marketing themselves around an Olympic Games. It's I understand the argument that it's there to protect the official top-tier Olympic sponsors. But, you know, we live in... 
21st century, it's 2020 now, an era of digital and social media where athletes want to market their own brands. They have this moment in the sun, a limited period of time at the Olympic Games where they can really market themselves for that next four-year swing uh, to get sponsorships and help with their training, etc. What's your view on Rule 40, which does prohibit things like athletes using the words medal or Olympics? It's very, very strict. What's your view on this rule? And um, we've seen some relaxation in the last year or so due to athlete pressure. Has that relax- relaxation gone far enough? And, and when will it change for good? Um, yes, I absolutely think it, it needs to be updated. And I think it probably needs to be updated more uh, and quicker than it is being at the moment. It's it's one of those things that dates back to the original ideals of Olympic competition uh, when we weren't allowed to be professional athletes. It was all amateur times. And it's very much changed now. And the athletes should have that right to, to market themselves because they're essentially being asked to train like a professional athlete to make all of those commitments um, and not getting as much reward from it as they should be. While at the same time, the IOC is making huge amounts of it with those Olympic sponsors. And yes, I accept that if they relax those rules, then those Olympic sponsors will also pay less for that right. Um but that pot needed to be shared out better amongst the athletes. And I think for me, relaxing that rule, even though that will maybe less coming into the, the coffers of, of the IOC, there's more getting across the board into individual athletes and it's reaching the individual athletes more. And that's what we need to see for those sports to grow, particularly the smaller sports. They, the actual athletes themselves need to be getting enough to, to keep them in the sport and to fund themselves getting to the pinnacle of their sport. Moving on to another topic, which I think is really, really sort of pertinent and timely um, at the moment, athlete transition. You know, we're hearing it's sort of crept up on the agenda more and more. It's a growing issue as athlete welfare, um, you know, rise, rises up the agenda as well. When athletes, you know, hang up their running spikes or whatever it may be, how well do you think they're looked after? And, and do you think this is a really challenging period when they when they finish competing on the field of play and they move into you know what could well be the majority of their professional life ill prepared for it you know we hear all sorts of stories about it being a tough time mentally um and that that big shift from having only ever known competitive sport to to going into the outside world it's there's is there a duty of care on organizations federations to help athletes through that tricky period Yes, I think so. I mean, it, it is an adjustment. I think it varies. It varies person to person, very much individually. Um, but also sports, um, across different sports, it, it varies. But just having that little bit of support, a little bit of advice, um, some understanding and some also retrainings, physical um actually constructive help that helps people to then transition into their next career because many athletes may have also missed out on certain points of training or higher education in order to be able to go into their sport so just opening up those pathways for them to be able to do that later um, or to to transition into some type of career afterwards and as you said as well identifying the fact that it's actually for a lot of people it's a huge mental obstacle um, and it's it's very very difficult psychologically to to transition from that life of an elite athlete to life in the in in the real world in, in the normal working world and, and some of those things 
are actually probably a plus that we take from the the sports world into the business world in terms of work ethos, um, getting the work done and working towards a goal uh, and being able to apply yourself and persevere. Those things are good things. But other things just need to be learned and skills need to be learned and you need to be able to adapt to those. And I think having that support structure in place, it, it needs to be there. It, it's vital um, and it probably should be started a fair way before the athlete actually retires. And there maybe needs to be a little bit of a focus too on athletes that are suddenly hit by retirement because I think it's a different story when you know you're going to retire at a certain point and you kind of feel like you've come to the end of your career and then you move into your um, job from there and your professional career afterwards from there but um, if it's suddenly thrown upon you by injury or, or by something else that you suddenly cannot com- continue with your sporting career that has to be very very hard to, to deal with and I think that's where people need to be really looking after the, the psychological well-being of the athletes when that happens. And looking, looking um, the business side of sport, I mean, I guess you're someone that as well as competing highly and being hugely successful um, in competitive sport, you've obviously always had an eye on the, the business side of sport, the commercial side of sport. Is that something you took with you early in your career and you kind of became business savvy, you were aware of the commercial opportunities and how to market yourself? Oh, um, <laughs> I'm not sure that I really did. Um, I think I was actually... Looking back, I, I was very fortunate when I was um, when I went to university. I joined a company called Park Associates at the time, who actually looked after David Gower and Gary Lineker, um, and they gave me a lot of very good advice in terms of setting up pensions for sports people, investments. Um, they also got me some sponsorship things, but the main thing was kind of teaching me to that it was not your typical career that my career was starting I was starting earning then at 18 19 but I would finish earning sooner um, and to start making the planning for that to be able to support myself later on so I think I was very lucky to have that guidance then to have my parents guiding me uh, as well um, in in the right way there and they also gave me um, help and understanding in terms of things like media training and just being able to present yourself well to handle because for a young athlete to suddenly be thrown in front of the cameras it is overwhelming and I was naturally a very shy child and I think that I had to learn to to overcome that Uh, and some of that's easy because when you walk off when you've finished competing you are a different person to that if it was just suddenly thrown at you out of nowhere that adrenaline helps you to be able to handle that but learning I think to challenge that to channel that uh, and to not say too much or say the wrong thing and to understand the the realm that you're in at that time I think it was really important that I had that education early on but in terms of I think understanding myself as a business I think I think on the one side I understood that very quickly in terms of what I was actually earning in sponsorship wasn't my money it was money to be invested in the business that was me training so it was essentially paying for altitude training, for my coach to come out, things like that. It wasn't just me being given that check from the sponsorship company and that was mine to spend. Um, I think I understood very quickly that it was about investing that into better returns. Um, and I think it's important as well that athletes understand that it's a, it's a two-way business. Um, when a company sponsors you, they are a business and they expect certain things from you 
in order for you to, to, to get paid. It's not just them paying you based on your results. It's based on a lot of other things around that, but the results are a huge component of that. So if you're not performing, there is a certain fairness, if you like, um, a certain reasoning for why athletes do get cut when they don't perform to a certain level because at the end of the day they're not charities supporting athletes they are businesses uh, and I think you kind of have to understand that that is a two-way street if you're not giving a return to them then just as they would pull out on other investments they will pull out on the investment in athletes uh, and I think that that maybe took some time I think for some sports to understand um, I think the IAAF when it went through its crisis was losing sponsors because it wasn't giving a return on those um, and I think they have to understand that you've anybody has to market themselves and give a return in order to expect to to get something from it. One of those brands that you've been very involved with over the years, of course, is Nike, a partner of yours and, and a brand we all know across the world. They stand for a lot of good. They they put their head above the parapet and, and have very purpose driven campaigns at the Colin Kaepernick campaign comes to mind. Um, they really stand for things that I think resonates with millennials and the younger generations. On the flip side, they've been embroiled in a lot of controversy through the Nike Oregon project and the doping um, accusations. And and of course, they, there's the Vaporfly uh, running trainer as well. They, they, they're certainly a brand that doesn't shy away from things. Can you talk a little bit about your personal journey with, a, with the brand of Nike and, and also the risk associated for brands such as Nike, you know, in associating themselves with athletes and group of athletes, which they'll bring their own controversies to sport. So at the beginning of my career, my first contract was actually with View From, um, which was a company owned by Brendan Foster. Um, and that was kit only. And then after that, I was given a, a sponsorship with ASICS. Um, and I was with ASICS for four years uh, and then moved to Adidas um, for another four years and then I, I moved to Nike in 2001. Um, so I guess I kind of saw a few uh, of the brands and how they operated. Um, I think I was fairly fortunate. I certainly had a very, very, <clears throat> very, very good relationship with um, sports marketing managers looking after me at, at ASICS um, and with with Nike all the way through. I've always um, really dealt with, with some great people and I, I've met a lot of people in the company who I genuinely think have the best interests of athletes and sports and the business at heart. Um, and I think it, it's fun too. It's fun being involved in the design process. It's fun getting to look at how shoes evolve and looking at the history behind companies as well. And I think that's one thing that's, I think, important with Nike is you get to go and look around the Heritage Museum. You get to see what the shoes were like in the 80s, um, a lot of, learn the history of people like Prefontaine um, and kind of go through from there and then to actually be a part of that history as well. So, I mean, I've seen shoes evolve a lot and I've seen the terrible, if I can say that, shoes that they ran in in the 70s and 80s, um, which were nothing like a, a, as good as the shoes that I ran in in 2000. And that pro probably brings us on to later talking about the evolution of shoes. Um, but I think in, in terms of, I think what Nike tried to do with the Oregon Project, um, with um, the... Um, 
uh, OTC and the Oregon Track Club and with Bowman Track Club um, was just support athletes. And I think the Oregon Project was essentially set up in the beginning by Alberta trying to make a difference to marathon running. And it actually took a while uh, of the Oregon Project for him to, to get to, to any success in the marathon. Um, but it, it did eventually come. I think it's it's the same. They they are essentially yeah, supporting someone when they don't know everything about that person. Um, and it's the same, I think, as a coach or as a manager. Um, you can have some idea of what people are doing, but unless you're with that person 24-7, you, you don't know. Um, and I think it also was or, or can be a risk for any athlete when they join any group because they don't know what other athletes in that group are or aren't doing. They might have some um, real trust and faith in the coach, but they don't know what other athletes are doing. So anything in a group is always going to have some kind of inherent risk. And I think the one of the things that I read, a quote from one of the athletes involved in, in what happened at the OTC, uh, at the Oregon Project, sorry, um, was really important. And that was that if you have absolute trust and faith in what you're doing, that's essentially all you can do to be doing what you're doing in good faith and to know that you've never done anything wrong. Um, and I think, and I'm sure, that there were athletes in the Oregon Project that could say that and can still say that. Uh, and I think that's where I found the whole thing and the way it was portrayed and the way it was um, discussed in the media hard to deal with because I couldn't bear the fact that there were definitely innocent athletes that were getting thrown under the bus and getting their images damaged um, and reputations damaged when they hadn't done anything wrong. And that for me, maybe because of everything that I'd gone through in 2015, but that for me was just wrong. And it felt like at that point, everybody needed to just take a step back and say, yes, maybe something did go on that shouldn't have done in the Oregon Project and that needs to be looked at. But we cannot lump everybody together in this and just say they were all cheating because they were not. Okay, well, look, looking to the future and the future of athletics, your sport um, in particular, Obviously, we worked together a few years ago now on when the Athletics Integrity Unit was starting up. That was a really exciting time for your sport, particularly after the, you know, the difficult period it had been through in the previous years. Since then, we've seen the IWF rebrand as World Athletics. I just want to get your thought on you know, someone that knows the, knows the sport better than most. What do you think is the key to the future of the sport? Is it as simple as marketing it? In, in better ways how is it going to engage that younger generation that Seb and the others at, at World Athletics have, have been speaking about and and I guess a third component is you know how do you not only make athletics more popular amongst amongst younger generations in comparison to other sports but also how do you compete with other past hobbies such as you know the kids are spending a huge amount of time on, on screens and that kind of thing so sport as a whole has to compete with other other hobbies as well as you know athletics competing with other sports if you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it's it's a tricky dilemma. I think it's a balance. Um, it's a balance about making the sport more appealing, more appealing to youngsters, um, maybe a bit more fun, a bit more lively, a little bit quicker, but without losing sight of the the core elements of our sport and the history of our sport and what makes it such a great sport. So I think messing around with the events too much is a mistake. Um but making them a little bit more fun. Um, and certainly I think in this current um, climate now, appealing to the youngsters a little bit more by making sure that we're looking at 
wider areas outside the sport so within athletics making sure that we look at elements like clean air making sure that uh, the more kids we encourage to take part in sport we're making sure they're doing so in clean safe air um protecting the environment just looking at the bigger picture and, and drawing people in in that way i think it is important because you're right we are competing with so many others and i think we maybe do have to accept that there are some that just won't be interested in athletics but the ones that might be we have to make sure we're reaching them and we're giving themselves something fun uh, and something good to, to 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 get involved in and to invest their time and energy in and showing them what they can get back out of it and i think essentially those haven't really changed what you get out of a career is so much more than what you thought you would going in. So it's making sure that we communicate that to youngsters, that it's not just about making making money or winning those medals. It's about how you grow as a person, the people that you meet, the way that you travel, the values that you learn, what you learn about yourself. It's about all of those things. Uh, and I think the more people that we get kind of conveying that and showing youngsters and the more they just get a chance to try it. I think for me, looking back, that's why I got involved in athletics was because I tried it and I loved it. Um, so the basic thing is just getting people involved in watching it and taking part. Well, Paula, we really appreciate the insight you've shared with us today. It's been fantastic to explore these topics in a great level of detail. So a big thank you on behalf of the whole Winning Formula team. Thank you. No problem. Been a pleasure. But we're not quite done yet. Just before you go, we're going to find out even more about you and what will be our regular light-hearted finisher here on The Winning Formula. It's our perfect formula feature. That's coming up next. The Winning Formula podcast. So, Paula, we're going to change tack slightly now to finish off and explore what your key to happiness is in our slightly less formal section of the podcast titled The Perfect Formula. The concept's a simple one. What it entails is a set of light-hearted questions relating to what makes individuals tick when it comes to all things sport and lifestyle. This will no doubt give us a great insight into the person behind the former world champion. So here goes. Paula, first up, um, what is your favourite sporting moment of all time? Uh, I think favourite sporting moment that I watched um, would be watching uh, Ilana Maya and Dorata Tulu um, win gold and silver in Barcelona in 1992 uh, and then take that lap of honour together and I think for everything that symbolised at the end of apartheid uh, and just two athletes take it, celebrating and, and taking that lap of honour together that was an, an iconic moment for me. Um, your favourite sports stadium? Um, am I allowed three? I think my three favourite would be Oslo, Zurich and Monaco. I think as a distance runner those are the three iconic and fast stadiums which produced um, great atmospheres but great performances and changing tack now um, what's the last song you downloaded or the current song you're playing regularly um, the last song I downloaded was actually You'll Never Walk Alone um, it was to compile the, the photo tribute to, to my dad for his funeral um, and he was a lifelong Liverpool fan so we wanted to do that for him so that's the last one Okay, this is one we hear a lot, but it's, I think it gives a great insight into people's kind of characters, personalities and, and what they like to do outside of their profession. Um, who would be your favourite, your three favourite dinner party guests? I think given what, I, what I've just gone through, I think it would be my dad, my grandma, and then my dad would have loved to met, meet Emil Zatopek and I would have liked to have met him. So I, I think I would put him on there too. Okay, and last but not least, um, the one thing you cannot live without family um and dark chocolate 
Uh, I agree with you on that last one and actually on the first one as well. So <laughs> that's a good place to finish. Paula, thanks so much for making it such a fantastic start to our brand new podcast, The Winning Formula. Thank you. The Winning Formula podcast. Well, it was brilliant to get Paula on the podcast today and gather an insight into a range of topics from her glittering career as an athlete to her current life and business interests. To finish off our first ever episode of The Winning Formula, we want to let you know a little bit about us. The Winning Formula is brought to you by sports and entertainment consultancy Right Formula. We're a consultancy that handles all aspects of sports sponsorship to ensure the relationship delivers against set objectives. We were founded back in 2009 on the principle of delivering the best returns possible for our clients. And we work closely with large global brands to create strategic partnerships that maximize return on investment. For more information on Right Formula, do visit our newly launched website at rightformula.com or check out our various social media channels using the handle at Right Formula. So thanks for listening to our first edition of the podcast. Please do subscribe, share and leave us a podcast review on your chosen listening platform. And we'll see you next time when we speak with another industry leading figure from the world of sport and business. In the meantime, keep well, stay safe and goodbye for now. The Winning Formula Podcast. How to succeed in the business of sport. Brought to you by Right Formula.